So, as of the time we are recording this, John Wick 2 has just come out. Just released. And let's cheers to John Wick 2, the best movie to come out since John Wick. Amen. Welcome to the Mix Six. I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. Uh, and in our pre-party, first thing we want to do, what we always do in episode ten and other episodes, is thank you to the patrons. We just love you guys so much. You're just so great. Thank you for the comments. Thank you for everything. Thank you for the iTunes reviews. Even the Super comments helpful. where I think you subtly hate us. I appreciate that you're telling us that you we're hate here us. to provide that service for you. That's right. That's right. And and not to go unnoticed, I, I do want to reiterate what Caleb said. If you love us please feel free to rate and review us on iTunes. And if you don't love us, just find another podcast that you do love and review them instead. And uh, if this is your first episode, we're not just terrible narcissists seeking five-star reviews, though that's <laughs> definitely true. Uh, we also review beers on here, and we review in a five-point system five points. that varies depending on our rating system. Uh, so I I'm going to take this one. Uh, last week we did... Goosebumps books, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was a strong choice from Brandy. And I found all of my Goosebumps books as I was cleaning out the basement yesterday. Oh, that might be worth some money, son. Also, they are all of the Goosebumps books. So that was that was something. Like literally everything? I think literally, including like the choose your own scare ones that R.L. Stein was just phoning in at this point. What, what condition are they in? Exceptional, because Ooh. I am a Near bibliophile. Mint. Yes, oh. yes. And uh, and I have, I'm OCD about paper, so if paper gets bent or messed up, I can't use it anymore. So I kept these things in. I just see the comments blowing up right now. And this is, <laughs> so DM me. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I, accept, um. I accept PayPal, uh, <laughs> personal check. Uh-huh. Uh, so... I, I, I read some Goosebumps, but I did not get nearly as into Goosebumps as I got into Animorphs. Here it is. So this is an Animorph-based system here, and I think I have really outdone myself. You have. Uh, so, number one, the worst beer, a beer you would not like to continue, is the Extreme, number 25 in the Animorphs. Now, it's not the worst due to plot. It's actually pretty thrilling prod about raiding a Yerk ice base in the Antarctic. They all morph into polar bears. It's not bad. But it is the first of the Animorph series to be ghost-written and not written by Kay, Kay Applegate. Is. So a number one beer tastes like a childhood betrayed, and uh, that is the book that represents that. Mm -hmm. A number mm -hmm. two is uh, The Separation, which is a two is a 32 this time around. Uh, this is Applegate's triumphant return with a half-assed evil twin plot spawned as Rachel while morphed into a starfish, gets cut in half, and when she unmorphs into humans on both sides, one's a good Rachel and one's an evil Jesus Rachel. Jesus fucking Christ, that's and an actual so, book. Yeah, that's an actual book. Uh, and so, sounds like a horror novel. And so, <laughs> a <laughs> Japanese horror Animorphs novel. Animorphs has a shit ton of body horror, son. Yeah. Like, it's a serious Was this before or after the tentacle porn in that story? <laughs> no, no, that's not until 36. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, 32 is Applegate's return, and it tastes like a childhood's disappointment. You're sad, you want to go back to the Ghost Riders. Uh, so there's that. Wow. Uh, number three is The Alien, which is number eight in the series. Uh, this the is, Alien. This is Axis, the Andalites, first book narrating. Uh, and what seems like a late season, we're out of ideas, so let's add a character thing, ends up to have like real depth. He's a very... One of my favorite characters from the series. Uh, and so a three, uh, a start of something good. The Alien, you're not sure where it's going to go yet. You'd probably have another. Yeah. Uh, so four is The Revelation. 
which is number 45, which is ghostwritten, but it's the beginning of the 10-book in cycle where shit starts to get real. It goes all Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Animorph. It gets, like, <laughs> high-level people fucking dying left and right. There's espionage, suicide bombing. Like, it, it for a YA book, it gets dark. Mm-hmm. So the revelations of four, and then five is uh, number 13, The Change. The only book it could be. If you've read Animorphs, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Tobias gets the ability to morph back into his human body. And if he stays in his human body for two hours or more, he will be able to become a human again. Not be forced to live his life as a hawk, but he will no longer be able to morph and no longer continue the fight against the Yurk body-snatching invasion. And he must make that choice. Uh, And it's... it's, uh, Teaches you about the nature of God, what it means to live a dutiful life. Um, it's a beer that shapes the man to come, uh, and a book that shapes the man to come. Did so, you just say it teaches you about the meaning of God? Oh, it's beautiful. It's okay. a beautiful book. Have you read it? This is deep. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so every time uh, somebody mentions um, Animorphs, I remember this tweet uh, from Michael Lutz, where it's like, J.K. Rowling, what if wizards invented uh, 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 travel through chimneys and didn't invent toilets? Oh, ho, ho, ho. K- uh, Ka Applegate, what if the living envied the dead? <laughs> Pretty much. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no. The last books of the Animorph series, I can't remember exactly, but they are like intense. My God. Like, it's apocalyptic. Well, it is good. brutal. You're, you're in for one today, folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so that's uh, that's the pre-party. All right. uh, join us on the other side for segment number one. We're going to grab some beers. See you in a minute. Caleb, what, uh, what's that beer over there? Well, uh, James, or J-Train on the RPPR forums, J-Train. Like to J-Train, uh, has helpfully suggested a Spatten Optimator Doppelbach. Uh, and it is quite good. I would give it a The Alien. It's a three. I would drink plenty more of it. Really? It's not changing my life. Uh, it's not anything stupendous that, by my palate, but it is... Quite drinkable. It didn't I teach drink. you the meaning of God. No, unlike the change, right. number thirteen. Yeah. Number one's a thirteen. It's obvious. Obvious. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean a number five? <laughs> yeah, this is. Yeah, the that's what I mean. Number five with your fucked up system. Oh, shut up, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Tobias. Never forget. Um, anyway, what are we talking about? Uh, oldie but a goodie for segment one: dissecting our fun, which is our game review and/or board game concept discussion. And today we're going to talk about a game that we uh, recently played for the first time. If you follow us on Twitter at the Mix Six, you saw us tweeting pictures of this a couple weeks ago. And the kind creator of the game uh, was nice enough to retweet some of that stuff, which always feels good for us. Mm-hmm. We, the lonely gamer. Uh, so today we're going to talk about Brewing USA. Which is a game that I think you brought back from Gen Con last year. Yeah, I played it first at Gen Con. That's right. Played it first at a meetup, and thank you, uh, Adam Mm -hmm. and uh, Laura. I believe you owned it and showed it to me. Uh, And then I bought it the next day because I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, it's great. And and the specific thing we're going to talk about with Brewing USA isn't just the game. We'll talk a little bit about the game and the gameplay, but also what, what that game represents to us, which is what it's really like to commit to a theme. In a game, so not just skin something and say, "Oh, this is this is a standard mechanic that is now you know a Lord of the Rings game or is an insert random skin." Uh, this is a game that is a wraparound treatment of being a brewer in America. And 
here's the thing, and what I wanted to talk about this, because I've been doing some research on it, because I, I was looking up uh, how to play to refresh when we went over on YouTube, and I also found a bunch of reviews, and I noticed they were all carrying a different box. There mm. are multiple versions of this game. The first edition, just like you're brewing a Goza. Like oh, okay. You're brewing a lager. Sure. That's it for the cards. Um, the edition I got at Gen Con, and the, and the original box is a typical board game box. Mm-hmm. The edition I got at, at Gen Con is basically looks like a fancy bottle of malt liquor yeah. container. And it just commits to the theme so goddamn harder, much harder than the first edition. To the point where, like, I was watching reviews of the game, and I thought a lot of people were kind of harsh when they were talking about the first edition. Uh, okay. And then I look at the second edition, and the mechanics have not demonstrably changed in any way that I understand. Yeah. And the reviewers are a lot more positive at right. it. And I'm like, this is this is the perfect variable experiment, because this game in the second edition commits so much harder to the theme. To the point where I'm not sure he makes how he makes money on the game, the high quality of the fucking components. Yeah, the pieces in and of themselves are like phenomenally put together. Qual- mm-hmm. Quality is a, is at a premium here. But also, so throughout the course of the game, r- really what you're doing, and here's kind of a high-level overview of the game. So uh, the purpose of the game is to m- functionally be the best brewer of everyone at the table. And the way that you do that is by brewing functionally like the best beers, the most profitable beers, and controlling market territories by distributing those beers. So as a player, here's what you're doing. Um, there are, in, are very Various ingredients needed to brew beers set out on the table. Some of those ingredients are only there because they're required combination, combinatory elements of the game. Some of them are there because they give you bonuses for having played those ingredients. So there are various ingredients laid out on the table. Then as a player, you bid on those ingredients. So how much value do those ingredients hold for you based on the beers in your hand that you want to brew? So it's an Mm -hmm. auction-style system that moves around the table, allowing everyone at the table to functionally bid on a set of ingredients so that you can build this kind of warehouse of beer brewing ingredients. So after you auction for ingredients, you've got stuff in your hand, then you're, you're allowed to start kind of building your beers. But it's not just the material combination then. So you play the ingredients in combination that you need to to brew the individual beers. Then you get to choose what markets or regions of the country where you'd like to distribute those beers. Then you get to choose to pour some money, some, some investment, some enhancement in those markets or those beers to crowd out competition and make more money on your beers. There's even another layer there, which is if both Caleb and I wanted to brew uh, a beer in the same area, the same market. There's even a game mechanic which would allow us to functionally have a brew fest where we can compete for, like, user praise, and the person who's the most popular beer after the brew fest competition then gets that market. I mean, it is really a a full-service, tip-to-toe, wraparound approach to being a brewer in the United States. And you've worked for a number of years at this point. In craft brew, distributing, yeah. doing the business stuff. And I obviously simplified for a game, but like not that far off. I was shocked at the as an abstract of, representation. Yeah. That's right. At the long form approach to all of the things that go into, I mean, having sat at tables with people who own breweries and talked about market penetration and how to enhance brand presence uh, and how to offset new and emerging brews. I mean, the, the, you know, again, it's a, it's abstracted and it's at a high level for game purposes, but I was shocked at the thoroughness 
of the approach to all of it. Not to mention, and I'm guessing this is a second-gen thing that you're talking about, the beers that you're brewing, the beers that you hold in your hand that are your beers. Actual beers. Actual fucking beers. From Every beer the on the car is an actual beer currently. For Where sale. it's from, who makes it, and what type of beer it is, and then obviously the name. Yeah, actual playing beers. it was like a combination of, oh, we've drank this, or, oh, we need to drink this, or, oh, I had this when I was on vacation. Or, it was yeah. like its own mixed six suggestion. Try this, not that. Yeah. Like, there was, it, it, I mean, it was just phenomenal being able to, yeah, pull a card out and go, oh my God, I've had that beer. Yeah, if everyone Michigan. suddenly stops recommending beers, we'll just open it. We'll just a open box that box and <laughs> draw a card. Um, yeah. Uh, and the components, uh, all of the little gold coins and your own little representatives are all bottle caps. Uh, all of the regions that you randomly pull are double sided coasters. Uh, all of the beers are actual beers. Like, it just commits so hard to the bit. That I, I love it. And it's basically, I, I, the mechanics are pretty interesting. It's doing some interesting stuff with Euro game mechanics. Yeah. But like when they were sort of packaged the wrong way, I think people were just like, ah, oh, it's Euro game mechanics. But this game yep. commits so hard to it in that second edition that like, and it's such a high quality product yep. that I'm like, I, I can literally watch it happen on YouTube as people being nicer to the game. Just because it's committing so hard to the theme, even though there are functionally no mechanical changes, it, it is. Um, and I and I don't know how to say this without being a little bit uh, denigrating, maybe to like much, much of the game, much of the games that we see today or that you find in game stores. In an era where board games are massive, the biggest they've ever been, so many games are knockoff or you know once removed versions of other games, reskinned and called this something meets different. This, yeah, yeah, that's that right. Of, yeah, Th- this is craftsmanship. Brewing USA is. Yeah. It, it is pouring time and effort and energy into getting this thing correct from from top to bottom. I mean, the bottle caps for as the the economy. These are these are subtle, simple things that show a level of depth and care for the craft of building a board game that, yes, some of the mechanics are a little difficult. I would not recommend this if it's four of you sitting around trying to learn board games for the first time yeah. or not play Monopoly. Uh, this game will be endlessly frustrating and slow to you. The auction mechanic alone might lose you if you really don't understand the long strategy of, of buying when to buy and not buying when yeah. not to buy. But but assuming you've got a reasonable vocabulary for playing board games, and you're really just looking for something... It's pretty easy to pick up. It's pretty easy to pick up. And you're looking for something which showcases craftsmanship, a real care and concern for the thing that it's building... It was it was flatly shocking to me as someone who plays a lot of games. And and I know a little bit about making games, so but not not a lot. I'm not a manufacturer by any means. I can't tell you if getting the bottle caps is cheaper, equal, or more expensive than meeples. But every other part of the game is more expensive. Like Absolutely. Getting actual beers in there, those full-blown coasters with the thick cardboard, that atypically-sized box, which I hope is boosting your sales, Adam. You deserve it. And Absolutely. it certainly pops off of a shelf. But in terms of getting a box of that dimension for a board game, like that's got to be expensive. Yeah. Like, uh, it is very high quality. There's a lot of been, there's been a lot of uh, money and love dumped into the production value yeah. of that second edition, and I think it pays off. Like, this feels like a passion project or a project of love. Yeah. This is, if I make money on this, great. If I don't make money on this, I've produced this beautiful piece of art almost in its simplicity and in its comprehensiveness. So I'm totally fine with that. Yeah, I see that first box, and I'm like, well, board game. And right. I just slide off of it. And that second box... I walked by it every day at Gen Con. I'm like, what is that? I should go over and look. And then we played it. I'm like, I have to have that. Not to mention. Yeah, from- and it's it was too expensive. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I was, for last day at Gen Con, 
I was completely tapped. I went without food that week. I should not have bought a another board game, and it convinced me to. So. And for those of you who are interested in board games, who feel like you have a good board game vocabulary and can play moderate to difficult board games with mechanics beyond roll the dice, mm-hmm. um, there are a number of interesting strategies that this game offers you. We're talking about it as if you, sh- you should value it because of the thing it's produced. The game itself is a lot of fun. Um, you can choose to be an aggressive brewer who only goes after the, the highest yield markets, even if that means pushing other people people at the table out of those markets yeah. and engaging in head-to-head competition. Uh, you could try to take markets that are completely empty, that are low-value markets, but you want to hit as many of them as possible as and quickly as possible. just dominate. Yeah. yeah, and just crush the small brand. Um, there, there's there's there a lot of variable cards that if you just invest in a single market, but you just lock it down, right. you still might win the game. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. yeah. once you get past just the aesthetic quality of all of it, there's a hell of a game beneath all that, which offers you a number of different strategies, uh, a variety of different play styles, and you know you can probably tell at this point I can't I can't be effusive enough about mm-hmm. brewing USA. Yeah. Uh, speaking of brews, I'm going to get one, and we should move on. Spencer, what are you drinking? One of my favorite things about this whole podcast has been the opportunity to try to say on air uh, words or phrases that I absolutely have no run at. I'm sure it's one of the favorite part of our listeners, too. That's right. With the exception of those coming from the culture, we are, yeah. you know, butchering. This is this is intimately European. So here we go. Uh, <laughs> this is a Cuvée du Chateau from Castile. Feel free to butcher me in the comments, folks. I'm bulletproof. Um, it's a Belgian ale. Um, so it's a little bit sweet, uh, it's light to drink and it's got a robust back end that I really enjoy. Uh, having said that, I don't really, I don't really prefer Belgian ales that much. So this for me is probably a three, which by your ranking is the alien number eight, uh, which is all I will say about the ranking system because I think, you know, we've fawned too long over the anamorphs. Not nearly enough. Fair. Um, (laughs) that's what I'm drinking. Caleb, what are we talking about? We in... Binge Binger are going to talk about uh, something that Kevin in the Dust Bowl suggested to us. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, he wanted to strike Marvel's Netflix shows. So we're going to tweak it a little bit. We didn't want to just do the Marvel shows because we want to uh, allow some more, uh, how do you say, surprise mm-hmm. into the segment yeah. because, you know, there's only a limited amount and we're only going to pick three. Right. I think there's like four or five at this point. I think if there are three. Well, Agents of Shield, maybe. Oh yeah, and it's not that. made by Netflix, yeah. but it's technically a Marvel show. I didn't so, think about that. but still, it's too limited. Probably said something about my list too. Yeah, so yeah. we're talking about. Um, uh, we're not Marvel purists here by right. any means, because nope. you're wrong and into the DCU. Very into the DCU. Um, so <laughs> we're going to go with comic book shows on Netflix. Yes, top three comic book shows on Netflix. That's what can be currently streamed. Is it all the Arrowverse for you, Spencer? Okay, guys. <laughs> yeah. So you know what. You know what? Guys? Arrow, 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 done. I, I just like saying arrow verse. Play the I, music. I want to say I want to say something right now, fuckers. Um, here, you know what? I'm going to start this list, okay, yeah. dicks? Because With here's, arrow. here's my know. asterisk, my caveat to this whole list. Arrow's not on my list. All right, arrow is not on my fucking list. I think that's a reactionary avoidance because maybe. You're new. All right, is maybe. it? Is it? Are any of the shows on the in the arrow verse? Yes. Okay. But yes. But Arrow is not. Okay? And here's why. And I don't think I owe you jackasses a justification, but here's why. Um, 
I love Arrow. I think we know that by now, okay? Um, Death Taxes love Arrow. <laughs> um, but I also recognize that, like, after season three, and maybe even in some of season three, Arrow gets really bad. Like, all of the soap opera-y elements that are hinted at in seasons one and two that I think are kind of attractive and, and they make me want to watch it like a young adult would want to watch something like that, those become the show right around season three, season four. And I only now watch it because I'm addicted to years worth of Arrow, and that's what soap operas do to you. They get you addicted to ridiculous storylines, and then they make them more ridiculous. So it did not make the list, okay? But an Arrowverse show did, and it comes in at three for me, and it's The Flash, because The Flash is a quality fucking program, all right? So a couple things about The Flash. One, Grant Gustin is a gift, all right? He's absolutely wonderful as The Flash. Two, really good writing all the way around. Uh, they do they do the speedster thing well. It looks good, and that's something that can look very bad. They have a um, a high regard and respect for nostalgia, bringing the old Flash in as the Flash's dad, but also as a separate Flash in a different universe on Earth Two. Actually, I don't know that he's the Earth Two Flash. He's not. Um, so there are some there are some really tricky things they do there that kind of reference the nostalgia of the DCU, but then also give you an updated version and a really cool version of the DCU that exists on the CW. And frankly, I think it's shocking, and I've said this before, that DC has gone out of its way in its and it's big budget pictures to do away with all of the great things they've done in the Arrowverse and establish these really wonderful characters with fairly large user bases. Granted, they're probably 15-year-old girls and me, uh, so I don't know if that's your big budget movie audience. Uh, but but I think The Flash is absolutely wonderful, and you can now binge two seasons on Netflix, and I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, I need to check The Flash out. I've only seen the first episode. Don't so. say that to pacify me. I get it. Okay? All right? <laughs> I, I can't judge The Flash. <laughs> yeah, okay. I've seen... A few seasons of Arrow. Right. I can judge it. Yep, you can. You There's can. Some I just soap did. opera. I just did. Intermittently interspersed with Salmon Ladder. I don't feel, I don't feel the need to defend myself anymore. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's um, third on your list? My third is Jessica Jones. Uh, I thought they did an excellent job adapting it without being dogmatic to the Alias franchise. Um, I very much enjoyed... Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I understand why they didn't make Jessica Jones a former like sub-Avengers member like they did yeah uh so i'm okay with that choice but i thought they got her attitude down uh they made uh the purple man although they did not refer to him as purple man no but he was awesome they made him terrifying and david Tennant was an inspired meta casting choice one of the best like hey you know your nerd god he's a crazy mind rapist now that's right uh like utterly terrifying like yeah up there with like once upon a time in the west for stunt casting a good guy it was phenomenal uh just twist upon twist upon twist. Um, it loses points and drops down to three because I dislike uh, Jessica's friends, specifically her best friend, radio host. I can't forget her, her name. And then her uh, her cop, creepy. Awful. Dude, yeah, just not my favorite actor. Absolutely awful. Um, but you've got the motherfucking pawn shop cop from The Wire playing the NYPD detective. Yeah. Like, everybody else is just killing it. Luke Cage is introduced. And he Killing was excellent. It. Excellent the whole time. They brought back Rosario Dawson, extending her in the yes, Marvel they made universe. Rosario Dawson the chain that links the Defenders together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really love Jessica Jones. Brutal show to watch. I watched the first six or seven episodes when I had the flu, and I don't know if it's because when I went back to watch, when I went back to finish them after I got off the flu, I had some like, oh man, this feels like when I had the flu. Or if because that show is like that show's hard to watch sometimes. Yeah, but like that's the thing. Like as as much as the Flash needs to be lighthearted. Yeah. 
if you're going to go that street level as defenders, yep. you need Jessica Jones to be that dark. I wish they could have figured out. You need out. those characters to roll their eyes. was like, oh, yeah, you can run faster in time. That must be fucking nice. Yeah. Anyway, let me beat the shit out of this crack dealer now. Yeah. Like, it, yeah, that, that needs to be that. I w- I, and I thought she was 99% perfect. I wish they could have figured out how to do action scenes with her because uh, they never did. They never quite did, yeah. which is why it's a three. That's right. Okay. So two on my list and staying in the Defenders universe is Daredevil. Uh, Daredevil was probably one on my list. My two as well. Okay. Uh, it's it, definitely my two as well. So. Yeah, except for a couple of things that I didn't love about Daredevil. I thought they got too far down the electropath in season two, and I didn't care for that one bit. I actually would have been happy without an electropath. Electra's always where Devil, Daredevil's going to stumble, because you're never going to like repeat the success of a Frank Miller Electra storyline in a comic in the 80s right. with any Daredevil story, with any other sane, non-jingoist psycho that isn't Frank Miller. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Electra was a misstep. That's the only thing that knocked it down from one for me. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Because other than that, two incredible casting decisions. Uh, the Kingpin casting decision in season one, Vincent D'Onofrio. Inspired. Is perfect. He was absolutely... I'm so glad that he comes back in season two also. Um, I had a great concern, actually, at the end of season one that we wouldn't see him anymore. After he was maybe the best villain in all of comic book universe on screen ever, but for Heath Ledger. I mean, I thought it was absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, and then I thought the the casting of the Punisher in season two. Someone got the Punisher right. Thank God. Why <laughs> did it take this long? Someone got the Punisher ninety eight percent right because then the way Punisher ends his role in Daredevil season two so is disappointing, mind numbing, so bad. disappointing, mind numbing. That bad. was the worst part of it. Yeah. But I'm really excited for the Daredevil TV show. I am too. I totally. Uh, but you want to talk about a show that gets the action scenes right? Oh my God. Those long take fights are some of the best things I've ever seen on a television show. I've never been more in on a show than I was after it's either episode two or episode three in season one of daredevil where he's moving down a hallway in and out of rooms and the camera is not following him into the rooms but people are flying out of the rooms as he continues to move down the hallway oh yeah it was and then they one-upped it in season two in this season two's like where he fought through the whole apartment building the raid with the chain on one hand and a revolver taped to his other hand one camera shot and when he's just like bashing the chain into the lights yeah. as they do a tracking shot as he walks. He's terrifying. He's it's a terrifying image. Frightening. It's exactly what Daredevil needs to be. That's right. And, yeah, no. Daredevil's definitely number two. So one on my list, then. Uh, this is going to come out of left field for some people. I don't think it'll come out of left field for you, though. We've talked lovingly about this show often. It's Young Justice. Not at all out of left field. Yes, my number one as well. Young Justice on Netflix is is single-handedly the most underrated comic book show in the history of comic book Season shows. two of Young Justice has a better spy thriller yes. plot than the last three Jack Ryan movies. <laughs> like, holy shit. The twists and, like, La Carre yeah. fucking turns of, like, infiltrating Black Man organization why can't every comic be like young justice not to mention show i have no idea there is there's not a bad episode in young justice from top to bottom there's two seasons of of it my understanding is that a third season has been greenlit uh for netflix which is unbelievable so some caveats for those of you that haven't watched it because i don't want you to hear this recommendation instantly run to your netflix streaming device uh, search for Young Justice and then see a cartoon and think, well, clearly they weren't talking about a cartoon. No, we were definitely we talking about a absolutely cartoon. are talking about a cartoon. <laughs> the best cartoon you've ever watched. There, there may not be, to your point, a better written uh, political intrigue story 
than the shit that happens in Young Justice. God, when you finish season one and you're just like, holy shit, yeah, okay, I understand why it focused on... And that's the thing. They make a focus on the sidekicks integral to the plot, not just like, all right, we need to talk about the sidekicks when we already made a Justice League thing. Right. Like, it's their story and they are the protagonist of it, yep. not just being the side. But when you get season two and they jump five years, yeah. and all the fucking relationships are changed and the lineup's different, and then they don't tell you that and it comes up organically in the story and it's sort of non-linear thing. Damn. I, damn. It's just like some intense storytelling for a cartoon. I remember texting you when I started season two asking you if I'd missed something because I couldn't figure out what had happened. They just roll into I mean, they slide into it like a nice glove and just roll with it. No big deal to them. Five years have passed. Shit got fucked up. Some of the people that you loved in season one, the protag- maybe the protagonist of season one is now a bad guy and everyone fucking hates him. Uh, unbelievable twist. And, for what it's worth, yeah, they're the sidekicks. Yes, it's the Young Justice because they're the mini Justice League. There's a lot of tension around that, and many of the subplots are built around the tension of being a sidekick or not giving the credit one deserves as a superhero. It's thematically consistent. It's unbelievable. Yeah, the shit that happens uh, between uh, Green Arrow and Speedy. Oh, yeah. Like, there's some real tension there between Flash and Kid Flash and the shit that they do with Kid Flash. There there are some really in-depth, deep storylines that dig into the DC universe in really interesting ways, uh, but also come out on the other side, making you feel, feel really awesome about having watched this cartoon. And it's not like you can't watch it with kids, either. Like, oh, yeah. Like, kids are going to enjoy the hell out of it. It's yeah. not kid-inappropriate, but it's right. like Samurai Jack. Yeah. Like, when you watch it as an adult, you're getting so many levels that you're not getting as a kid. Like, it was like, holy shit, is that a Shogun's Assassin's reference? God, they just sampled the song. It, it, like, it you just get so fucking nuts crazy about it. But there's so many levels of, like, intrigue and dramatic irony yep. uh, in every episode of Young Justice that it's just... But, like, shit's also exploding and superheroes are fighting, so a kid could like it, too. It's perfect. And for being a Superman kid, and we've talked about this, mm-hmm. I was never crazy about the animated Superman rendering that we got for 20 years as Superman and then Justice League and then Justice League Unlimited. Yeah. I think this is the best treatment of Superman in a cartoon since, you know, probably the, like, original Superman serials in the 30s and 40s. I also think it is the best treatment of Batman since Batman the Animated Series yes. in a cartoon. And that's saying a lot. I find Batman the, the, I find the Superman-Superboy dynamic in Young Justice, like... Fascinating. He's he Yeah, he's aloof like your distant father. He's aloof like your distant god. Like, yeah. thematically, it just gets Absolutely. dark. Absolutely. Like, yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah, so if you haven't watched Young Justice, go watch Young Justice. It has become for me background noise I put it on when I'm doing other things folding the laundry yeah, and shit I've both seasons because like I'm just times. flummoxed yeah. by how good it is mm-hmm. so so in order The Flash was three Daredevil was two Young Justice was one for and me. tellingly I replaced The Flash with Jessica Jones uh, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. Daredevil and Young Justice yeah, yeah, yeah. which says a lot about where we are in the world I yes. think yeah absolutely okay and on that note time to get another beer Arrowverse okay <laughs> okay What's next on your on your beer odyssey today, Caleb? Well, in the long tradition of mix six fucking up foreign words. Here we go. Uh, Brasserie du Dechils Rigor Mortis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A Belgian-style brown ale. I'm going to try it right now. I'm trying it live. Fuck it. He's trying it live. How'd it go? His face seems to be all mm. right. Oh, inquisitive. Mm. Mm. That's along. pretty good. I yeah. like it. That's a, that's a revelation. Is that a four? Yeah, that's, right. a, that's a number f- a four that is a forty five. <laughs> uh, that's a revelation. That's very good. It's uh, 
distinct. I feel like there's got a little bit of cherry on the back end. I could be wrong, but you know, it's kind of light effervescent. Yeah, light effervescent with some cherry on the back end. Yeah, I like that. Nice. Okay, well, that's awesome. Well, while you're drinking uh, that, whatever it's called, the revelation. That's right. We'll we'll be moving into beginning one- of the ten book cycle that ends the year core. In case you hadn't heard. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Trust me, if you'd heard, never mind. Um, uh, we'll, be, we'll be engaging in our third segment today, which is professional drinker, pro drinker. Uh, this is something we've done a couple times. I think this was actually our first segment ever. Yes. Ten episodes ago. Well, we had to lay our cards in the table. Which, if you do the math on that, that's at least 60 beers in the course of this podcast. High five yeah, on the mic. That's, that's, that is... I'm sorry, liver. Um, so we'll be doing professional drinker. We had a really great listener-suggested question. Yeah, so Ethan Cordray uh, asked Mick Six uh, something that should have clearly been its own discrete segment. Absolutely. So that's on you, Ethan. Yep. But I've corrected it for you. Yep. <laughs> uh, but what are the qualities of a great bar? I know both of us are intensely passionate about this, to the point where we've walked in doors, looked around, and just... Left. Turned and left. Nope, um, not this place for certain qualities. So uh, I'm interested to see what you have to think about this because you kind of approached it differently than I did. I, I just, did. I had a single platonic ideal of a bar in right. my mind, whereas right. you're splitting it by context, which I think is more interesting. So bars are very functional for me. I'm going to a bar for one of two reasons because I, the reality here is I'm a homebody. So my my ultimate preference is to be at home, maybe with people, probably more often than not without people, but for my wife, yeah, uh, and dog. Um, but, but functionally speaking, I go to a bar for one of two reasons, either, either to have good conversation or to get turned. Okay. I'm Mm -hmm. going to get absolutely fucking plowed. So as I was thinking about this question, what are the qualities? Drunk in a way that would be sad if you did it at home. Frankly, uh, well, and and, and embarrassing (laughs) if you did it in public. Yeah. So it's one of those things. Well, it's a trade off. That's right. That's right. It is. I give people fake names to offset the risk. (laughs) Um, so, so I've broken my ideal bar. Into two categories: the to get turnt bar. I think that's the that's the nomenclature these days mm-hmm. for the kids. Yeah, turnt AF, uh, and then the the good conversation wax philosophical bar. So I'm going to start with to get turnt. Tell you the things that I'm looking for here, and let me know when these things ring true with you. So if I'm looking oh, yeah. no, just I'll, to get, I'll chime in. Absolutely canned. Uh, I'm going out because I want to take shots of fireball. I want to uh, talk loudly and obnoxiously with people. And I want to forget what I did the next day. Here are the things that I'm looking for. First and foremost, and this may come as a surprise to listeners, I'm looking for a fucking jukebox. Touch tunes gotta be Touch on that wall, son. FTW. All right. If I cannot control the music in some ways, you better have the best goddamn playlist in America. Okay. <laughs> and if you don't, I want no piece of you. Yeah. So if you ever wanted to know how to get me to get rid of whatever cash I might be carrying at that time, just have a Touch Tunes on you. All right. And now that Touch Tunes has allowed me to just enter my debit card on my phone and I can play it from anywhere in the bar, I'm sorry. If you're in the bar, you're going to hear a bunch of Taylor Swift and Freddie Mercury and fuck you for not liking it. I've seen that. drunk guys at strip clubs that hold onto their ones tighter than you. You do in a bar with a touch tunes. Oh, it's just like my. you just throw your wallet at the screen, <laughs> and when you realize that don't work, you kind of begrudgingly feed them one by one. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, the, there is a bar in downtown Springfield that has an ATM and a touch tunes, and I believe those things were put there exclusively for me because they knew that you one just put a tube from one into the other. It's a cycle, <laughs> but yeah, it's the circle of life on that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a jukebox, touch tunes. Yes. Here's a weird quality of the bar that I want to get absolutely platooned in. Phased attendance. Phased attendance. So when I get there, I don't want too many people to be there. 
Oh, yeah. Like, I want it to be kind of chill when I walk in. Like, a couple people not sitting near me, probably. We do get started early. That's the thing. We get started early. Like, we get started at, like, three or four some days. Some days even earlier than that. And so, I, you know, I like the lighter crowd when I'm getting going. But by six, seven beers, not p.m., I would like more people to be in the bar. So as I get drunker, I prefer a moderately larger crowd because then it doesn't feel so isolated and alcoholic-y. It feels social and fun. So I like a tendency See, to increase over time. That just makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah like, so um, it needs to be an it place that people will go to to have fun. Right. But it needs to be people that are adults. So it's Correct. not known specifically for being like an it place where you're just like trying to find a mate to breed That's with because right. you're a college kid. That's right. <laughs> so it shows up, but people who still care about being cool yep. show up fashionably late. Absolutely. Or people that have things to do in your life. We do not. So it just makes sense right. that there aren't many people there when we arrive. That's right. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's perfectly fit for our niche. Right. And that's, yeah. a, that's important to me because when I go to a bar to get, to get just brutalized, I don't want a bar hop. Like I want to go to one place, yeah. and I'll sit there for six hours. Yeah, and it's but it's not shoulder to shoulder by the end of the night. Nope. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, this is where it's happening. And, I'm and glad we came. My drunkenness can kind of sink into the background of drunkenness. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not, I might be the drunkest guy in the bar, but you wouldn't know because everybody else is also not everybody there. there's just to have like one with dinner and right. leave. Yeah. yeah, what I'm saying is there aren't a lot of people drinking fine wine when I'm trying to get <laughs> yeah. drunk as shit at these places. Yeah, you're okay. Turn. So another thing that's really important to me are windows. Um, I know a lot of people are big on the kind of like dark, seedy, hole-in-the-wall cave. cave. Yeah, the drinking cave. See, I'm more cave than you. You you definitely are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there are places, there are moments where I'm okay with cave, but I like windows. I like not feeling trapped in a place. And so having some sunlight is meaningful for yeah. me, especially since we start earlier a lot of days. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, shuffleboard is a, is a must. We play a lot of shuffleboard while we're drinking. Um, I pride myself on the ability to play shuffleboard. I find that, and, and I'm sure everyone is the same, uh, if there is a novelty game that I can play, bags, shuffleboard, darts. We're playing it. Beer pong while drinking. I'll drink infinitely more, and I'll be infinitely better at you all of those You don't want to play things. beer pong with us, son. You don't want to play beer pong with us. <laughs> the Mix 6 beer pong challenge is coming, and you fuckers watch out, okay? <laughs> watch out. <laughs> Uh, so shuffleboard or some sort of game that I can play because then I lose I lose the fact that I'm getting drunk. Good fried food is a prerequisite. Uh, yeah, you know on your on your list, I'm guessing that would be like good chicken strips. Mine literally says some food of some kind. It just has to be edible. It doesn't yeah. have to be that great. Right. It could be like bowling alley quality. I just need food when I'm getting turned. Yep. And then, uh, shuffleboard too. I would like to say it doesn't have to be like a pro shuffleboard like. Table. No, we it doesn't have to be. We played on some shit tape. Shitty That's half tables. the fun is learning <laughs> that, like, at that point of the table, it's going to take a ninety degree turn left right. and hit the bartender and, and like, roll backwards. And, and learning that about the table is part of the part of the engagement. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Last thing on my to get turnt list: uh, things things aren't sticky. There is nothing more off putting to me than putting my hands down on a table and feeling like someone has just ejaculated on the table. I don't. I don't want. I don't want to get the impression that that table hasn't been wiped down in weeks or months. Or the floor, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. You take your yeah, just hearing that sound of your shoe Ugh. peeling off a yeah, yeah, and board. and I I hate that. In, there are a lot of bars in Springfield, for example, that I think have confused dive bar with disgusting bar. You can be one without being the other. Yes, 
And the few that we go get, to a lot, of we do. The few that get that balance right are the ones that I'm willing to give my money to all day. So that's my two get turnt list. Yeah. Why don't you take a stab at this now? On my two get turnt list, there's not much of a difference. Okay. On on yours, uh, shuffleboards a mutt. Need some touch tunes up in there, if only because I'm going with you. Uh, yep. And you you run a mean playlist. I do. Um, it's not perfect for me though. Some food of some kind. Uh, I do like it if you have uh, some variety of seating. Oh, sometimes I want a stool. Sometimes I want a booth. Sometimes I want the bar itself. And if you're just like if it's set up like a fucking huh. cafeteria or yeah. if it's all booths, I'm not into it. Yeah, like, I don't know that I've ever sat at a bar proper with you. Uh, I do. It's rare. Right. I like the option though. Um, so I need a variety of seating. Most places can, can hit that. Um, I like sane pricing for a bar I'm getting turned at. If I'm here for quantity, I want to be able to buy in bulk. If you have a fireball (laughs) shot machine, I shouldn't be paying more than $2 for that. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of bars that I could get turned in because they're not that great, but have like. I want to drink with fancy friends and have a fancy conversation. Prices? Yep. And I'm like, nah, nah. You, you need to price yourself. Fuck your couch. Last thing for a bar I get turned in or a bar I want to have a conversation in. Hmm. No ambush live music. If there is a band Jesus. or anyone doing karaoke, you need to give me like two weeks fucking notice. That's right. I need to know the minute <laughs> it starts so I can get the fuck out of That's there. That's right. Like if anyone's like, there is nothing that will kill my enjoyment of a bar faster than someone fucking breaking out an acoustic guitar and setting up a microphone. That's right. Like, I will jump out one of those nicely placed windows That's that right. you so desire yep. uh, as if the building were on fire. If a like, patron gets up and starts singing Journey, I'll burn the place down while I'm living. Oh, yeah. Karaoke, even worse. Like, karaoke night needs to be quarantined no good bar. as if everyone there was infectious. That's right. Uh, and I'm not saying I never go to a karaoke bar. I'm not saying I never karaoke. I am saying I need I'm to know we are doing that specifically, and I don't want it to intrude on in any other part of my life. And if I want to go see live music, I will go to a concert that might serve beer. Mm-hmm. It's not a bar. I'm not there for the purpose of the bar, so I'm there for the purpose of the music. you yep. got to advertise that. Yep. You can't have like, oh, on Wednesdays, will that people have an open mic? It's like, no, 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 no. You yep. didn't like covered the door with a vinyl <laughs> poster yep. as large as the door People telling me singing. of that. So this is this is a violation. Absolutely right. Okay, so here's my only here's my only modification. So th- that's the two get turned list. The other part of that list is to wax philosophical, have a nice conversation, mm-hmm. all right? Only four conditions here. If I'm getting turned, I really don't care what kind of beer selection you have. Frankly, if you've got bush light or some derivative, I'm there, all right? But but when I'm when I'm wanting to have a good conversation, I'm probably not going to want to drink as much. So what I drink, I'd like it to be better. So either a really good limited selection of craft beers or a good selection of whiskey bourbon. Okay, if you've yeah. got those things, great, we can talk. Comfort is really important to me. Not too comfortable. I don't want to sit on a couch, but I also don't want to sit on a wood bench or a stool. Oh, I'm not into couches. Nope. Couches put me to sleep when I'm, I'm drinking. I'm looking for, like, seating variety times three, not seating variety times four. That's right. If it's furniture, get it the <laughs> fuck out. That's right. I don't need... Yeah, fuck your couch, literally, yeah. okay? Uh, good lighting is really important to me, but not necessarily outside lighting. So you got some Edison bulbs? Throw them up there, okay? Because I'm looking for that. And then finally, moderate crowd. 
There's nothing weirder than trying to have like an, an intimate or philosophical conversation in a whiskey type bar and there's no one else in the fucking bar because then it's just the bartender listening to you try to be more philosophical and intelligent than you are. Not unlike this podcast in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's really <laughs> off-putting. I get super self-conscious in those moments. So a moderate crowd to generate some noise where I feel like there is a cone of silence by way of volume around me. See, my crowd requirement needs to be not moderate so much but mixed like i don't need to feel like i am not cool enough to be there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh so for instance like um to use bars in springfield as an example yeah the mud lounge right just hipster central everyone's 10 years younger than me i don't belong there i don't i don't belong there you don't want me there um everyone is there to be seen having a conversation i would like to actually have a conversation and i don't give a fuck if you look at me. see and i love um, the mud lounge but but for some reason i always everywhere i sit maybe it's the type of seating everywhere i'm always uncomfortable there and i wish i wasn't right and so comfort is important in those moments and for me mud lounge is another thing uh that i'm looking for i'm looking for a variety in your tap line but I also want some reliable staples. Absolutely. And if I had a D100 die and rolled on the mud lounge table, 58 times out of 100, I'm going to find something they don't have. Absolutely. Because they're so dedicated to variety, I don't know if I'm going to get a beer there. Right. Like, I, I don't know if they're going to have what I want. Like, sometimes I have to deal with a Sapporo because it's the only thing they had. And it yeah. was my fifth choice out of the five fucking things. Right. Uh, so and, good limited selection. Yeah. yeah I, I just want reliable staples and a variety. Mm -hmm. I want you to segregate it. So like if I go to J-O-B just down the street, I'm going to get a Guinness. It's going to be a perfect pour. It's going to be a great day. If I want a shot of old granddad whiskey, it's there for, for $2. me. And then I went last two days ago yep. and they had MILF on tap. Jesus. And I'm just like, this is it. The night's done. <laughs> this is the take my wallet. We're yep. we're finished here. Right. And I had no idea it was going to be on there because they got some variety. It's yep. and like yeah, yep. That's definitely yeah. It. You want the surprise, but the surprise shouldn't be the exclusive. The yeah, the surprise should not be a, in, a layer on top of yeah. consistency. Yeah, it shouldn't be supplemental. Like Absolutely. it, re it replaces consistency. Right. So if you're ever looking to drink with us, find one of those two very specific <laughs> ideal settings. And give us, a, give us a call. Indeed. On that note, and speaking of bars, I'm going to grab another beer. Spencer, what are you drinking? So this is a listener-suggested beer. Evan suggested the Omegong Three Philosophers Quadruple Ale. I had this last night. Evan, you're on point, son. Evan, with a crush here. If I could, if I could kiss you on the mouth, I'd kiss you on the mouth. This beer is delicious. Um, I tried this last night for the first time while we were playing Mice and Mystics because I wanted to see what it was like. Uh, I was happy to have a second one today. This Three Philosophers, uh, it is a unique Belgian-style blend of Omegong, Quadruple Ale, and Leafman's Creek. And it's got a little bit of cherry, I think, on the back end even. Uh, it is a little bit rich, a little bit thick in the pour. It's absolutely delicious. It is certainly a five for me, which is the change, the change. in Animorphs language. It has uh, ostensibly taught me the meaning of God. <laughs> and so this has been quite a revelation for me. Thank you, Evan. It's also 10%, and I'm a bourbon and some beers in, so we'll see how the rest of my Sunday goes. That's how I, it's 9.7. <laughs> so what I'm saying is the shit's not looking up, okay? Yeah. Here I come, honey, okay? Um, this is what I'm drinking. Caleb, what are we talking about? We, uh, Sean has suggested Man of Steel and or 
Batman v Superman? And the answer, of course, if you've ever listened to our podcast, is neither. Um, and uh, But I didn't want to let that go, because our number one segment vote this week is this was a mistake yeah no like overwhelming number one right overwhelming number one yeah uh people want to hear more about branson-esque folly uh so here's the thing here's how i will reframe this question from sean right um where was the mistake uh so do we put it on Zack snyder's shoulders Mm -hmm. do we uh put it in the adapting dcu in film at all Mm because they've Forsaken the Arrowverse, and mm-hmm. we know how you feel about that. <laughs> or um, is the hubris trying to make a Superman film at all? No, I don't think. Well, it's I that. know that's not for you, but that's going to be my position. I don't. Think but it's anyway, um, and this was a mistake. Let's assign blame. Yeah, someone must be put in the stocks for this Superman mistake. Yeah. To whom do we ascribe? It? So I actually have a, a culprit that you have not listed, and the culprit is Marvel. So here's my argument. Oh, what? what? Here's oh, my, come on. Here's my <laughs> argument. All right? It's your fault I stole that because you made it so easy. Yeah. No, no. No, 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 no. Here's my argument. Marvel, what Marvel has shown us over the bulk of their films, obviously not the Netflix stuff, but the bulk of their films, is that there's a really fucking tangible way to do a great superhero film that is also lighthearted. And they've done it really meaningfully across a number of different platforms. So not just Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, but Chris Evans' Captain America. Even in what is arguably like the greatest political intrigue film of the 20th century, 21st century, Winter Soldier, there are some lighthearted moments. It's bright in places. The colors are vivid and interesting. They have made lighthearted an undertone of what could otherwise be a pretty dark universe. Even Civil War, which is about superheroes warring with one another in a none-too-thinly-veiled reference to discrimination in America and segregation. There are these great moments where Paul Rudd as Ant-Man is hysterical as a human, and you're thinking to yourself, my God, what a funny, charming film. So I think that DC had to, or at least they thought, they had to find a way to distinguish themselves from the Marvel Universe. To make a Justice League that looked like a, a an Avengers reskinned and cloned would have looked like a cop-out because, you know, hey, look what you do with the Avengers. We'll just do that with different characters. I think that DC felt that they had to distinguish themselves in some way. And so their, their answer to Marvel's lightheartedness was to be the Jean-Paul Sartre of, of comic books, to be the existential crisis of life personified as a Superman. So I think the must... I think the culprit here is Marvel, as you roll your eyes at me. Producer Ross, can you get, like... I'm, I'm not up on the specifics. Can your microphone handle that much bullshit? Uh-huh. Like, does it have the Hertz rating? Is it, like, choking as it goes down the pipe? Don't worry, I've got a filter. It's all, all right. Hmm. Um, I mean, hmm. I hope it's working overtime. <laughs> okay, yeah, you Okay, architecture, you made a beautiful building. I can't make it that beautiful. Let me burn all the buildings down, and it's your fault no. for making that building? Like, it's, what? It's called brutalism, Caleb. It is the response to over-the-top, Baroque, beautiful... So brutalism is the fucking responsibility of what? Like, right. the Ionic arch it is like, an answer, column? Like, it, what? It we go back to the to Greeks, the and they look what you've wrought upon us? Yes. Well, to be fair, is also advances in material science, you know. Oh, uh, fucking shut the fuck up, <laughs> right, right. producer Ross. Right. right. Yeah. Jesus, huh. your brutalism to <laughs> apologies. Huh. Um, that's nonsense. Yeah. That There were many answers you could have made to Call this question. Call it what question. you want. Many answers you could have made to this question that weren't as harsh as Superman was a mistake. Uh, and so, since you've 
since you're acting the fool and all mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. all of civil discourse is broken down, mm-hmm. the mistake was making a Superman. Film. Absolutely false. No, the mistake was making Superman. Christopher film. Reeve's Superman films are perfect. Yeah, they show that. They, well, the first one. I the mean. first one is the second one ain't bad. The second one's pretty okay. good. Yeah, Richard Pryor shows up and shit gets weird, but Christopher Reeve's two, Superman yeah. is good because it follows the mythic structure. Because mythic structure is what Christopher Reeves' career followed after he became the symbol of Superman. Superman is successful with Christopher Reeves because it's meta-Superman. You're looking at Christopher Reeves as the embodiment of Superman's values. When he gets paralyzed, that only gets worse. That doesn't... When he does wor- yes, it does. Doesn't Don't try and divorce the It was good when it came out. Thank you, It was good when it came out. Yeah, okay. Even before it was But was it a... Superman story cannot handle the filmic cinematic enterprise False. because it's a mythic this- structure. What's the best Superman comic? All-Star Superman. Yeah. Fucking try and film uh, Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman. I'm glad you gave the only correct answer for that. We at least agree on some semblance of truth. What about the man who has everything? Alan Moore. Alan, the one where he doesn't have powers and isn't Superman? Yeah, it's fucking great. Because that's the essential quality of a narrative. Someone has to have weakness. Superman does not. So you either make him a person of weakness, in which case he is ipso facto not Superman, and it can be a good story, but it's or about you his treat choice it as Superman, to be Superman, and then it's mythic, and then it has to follow the fucking structure of Heracles' trials and shit, and no one has figured out how to do that cinematically, and that is the it's just sheer hubris. It's just like I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking adapt the Pantheon into a trilogy. No, you are not. You are not gonna do it. You're gonna try. You're gonna fail fantastically by giving Superman a piano throwing kid or making him a you know fucking world destroying eye lasering goddamn weapon of destruction. Like, hey, what if Superman was Miracle Man by Alan Moore? I guess you could do... Oh, Zack Snyder did that. Oh, damn it. Um, Look at it. Rain the limbs of the innocent. Like, yeah, I think the problem is trying to think you can adapt Superman. And I'm not saying Superman's bad. I'm saying that Superman does not lend himself to the cinematic medium because he has no weaknesses and he's too mythic in his structure to translate into the language of film. Do you know who would would be a good director for All-Star Superman? You. Michael Bay. <laughs> uh, okay, you lost me there. Time to get another beer. Yeah. We're out. <laughs> Caleb, what are you drinking? I am going to drink a Shiner Ruby Redbird. Not had it before. The bottom says a beer brewed with Texas Ruby Red grapefruit juice and with natural and ginger flavors added. I don't think you're going to like one bit of that. I'm pretty sure ginger's natural, but like, I'm going to talk to you about that later, Shiner, but I haven't tried it yet. He's drinking it now. Uh, Contemplative. Uh, Thinking about it. Ain't bad. On the fence? No, it's not a fence. It's an alien. It's a three? It's a three. Yeah. I, I don't dislike it by any means. I'm not thrilled. Talk to me about the setting where you'd want to drink another one of those. Uh, a barbecue. That's what's in the cooler. I don't want to go inside and get more. <laughs> it has alcohol in it. Good. 
Good. Okay. A solid three. <laughs> a resounding yeah. uh, mm-hmm. endorsement. There's yeah. a centaur with a scythe for a tail. Oh, you, that's an andalite. You wouldn't know because you're a Philistine. That's right. That's right. right. You hear that, Shiner? Put more of your stuff in places that are, that are slightly more convenient than other Animorphs. places. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm going to introduce this because this is a uh, lot of questions I've combined a into lot. a lot. It's an amalgamation. Yes. An anamorph. An anamorph of questions, uh-huh. if you will. Uh, so Thad suggests, and God bless you, Thad, for Thank suggesting you, this. Thad. And uh, getting lit, you should talk about Vonnegut's Mother Night, which I just re- I was just about to reread it myself. So good. I said that on a previous episode. So I figured an attempt to manipulate your conversation in that direction. Alternatively, any Vonnegut discussion is always welcome. Amen. Not by you in particular, by anyone. I agree, Thad. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I thought I'd combine this to give it an interesting spin. So Justin Burt uh, also wanted us to talk about best science fiction novels or series ever. And then he asked in Mix 6, is science fiction the best type of fiction in so much as it allows any traditional story structures or arcs while also providing potential predictive value and or insight into the future? Mm. So Justin Burt wants to hear about science fiction. Mm -hmm. And so this is a question that has, you know, puzzled the ages. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to choose to combine those into, did Kurt Vonnegut write science fiction? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any worth in that label or any genre label? Mm-hmm. Uh, if so, where does Kurt rate amongst that label or outside that label? Wow. That's a big one. Yeah. That's a big one. And with some limited time. So mm-hmm. first I should just I should lay my biases on the table. Kurt Vonnegut is my favorite author, and it's not close. It's, it's biases by being both of us. Yeah. That's totally, right. completely agree. That's right. Yeah. It is Vonnegut, a large gap. And then a bunch of other stuff yes. in terms of in terms of, of fiction writing and even non some nonfiction work. Timequake, for example, which is fictional and nonfictional and a memoir and not a memoir and is beautiful all at the same time. So so whatever it is. Have you read everything? Um, I I think at this point I have read every novel and probably half of the short stories and probably most of the essays. I have not read all of the short fiction. I've read uh, Man with No Country, Cat's Cradle, Slaughterhouse. Mother Night, Player Piano, Sirens, Dead and Dick. Welcome to the Monkey House. I've not yeah. read Dead Eye Dick. I've not read Time Quake yet. Oh, my God. I have um, both. You should borrow. Yeah. Time, I, yeah. Time I, Quake I, is my favorite Vonnegut novel. And then Bluebeard is oh, actually second. And I don't man, know if you, that's a deep cut. Have you read Vonnegut. Bluebeard? I haven't read that either. No. Man, Bluebeard. I just listed all my readings, so okay. I, I'm, I'm behind. So but. Bluebeard and Time Quake are great. Uh, Bluebeard is a, is a really uh, meditated approach on, meditative approach on art and what, what art means to the individual. Uh, Timequake is a memoir to life, having lived a long life and created all these fantastical worlds and these incredible people like Kilgore Trout, um, who is a mainstay throughout much of the Vonnegut novels. Mm-hmm. He is the the Vonnegut, uh, the Vonnegut inserted, as it were, into the Vonnegut universe. Um, uh, Kilgore Trout has an opportunity in Timequake to functionally reset a timeline. And Vonnegut muses. Oh, breakfast as well. Okay, yeah. yeah Vonnegut muses in this kind of fictional world of a reset timeline, but also talks about these very intimate moments where his first love and ex-wife has told him that she's dying of cancer, and she asks him to write a paragraph about the end of her life, and so he recites that paragraph, and it's incredibly moving. Um, I just don't think I don't think there's anyone, and so so to get back to kind of the crux of the issue here, which is which is to ask, what is it that Vonnegut writes? Does it count as science fiction? And is there any value in ascribing that label to Vonnegut's work? 
Um, I don't know. So as I was thinking about, I know that we were going to talk about Vonnegut. I knew we were going to talk about why Vonnegut for both of us. For me, and where I think science fiction matters in this conversation is, Vonnegut is, is at least the best example of treating absurdity not as a mechanic, but instead as the premise. Um, you know, there's this great uh, Greek concept of entelechy. It's this Aristotelian notion that implicit in the seed is the tree. So all things have within them this perfection at the end of the line, temporal, chronological, narratively. Uh, what I love about Vonnegut is that Vonnegut often starts after what we think is the final line of a thing. Yeah, suspense Be is overrated. That's right. Be beyond what seems like the most logical conclusion of absurdity is where Vonnegut often starts the story. And so mm -hmm. Slapstick, for example, starts after New York has succumbed to kind of this tribalistic treatment of the boroughs and society has broken down and we've now functionally elected or just allowed to come to power kings of areas of New York or what is left of New York. That, that is a step beyond the logical conclusion of tribalism in American society. And so uh, I think that what, what is great about Vonnegut's science fiction, I do think that in, in traditional terms, Vonnegut has written some great science fiction. Um, you know, I'm, I'm taken back to Arthur C. Clarke. I think it's Pebbles in the Sky where Clark talks about the, the, the nature of science fiction as a predictive tool to Justin's question, which is, you know, somewhere in there Clark says something to the effect of, I don't believe that the makers of tomorrow will all be science fiction writers, but I do believe that they will be science fiction readers. And I think there's something to that predictive nature of science fiction, which yeah. is until, you know, very literally until we, we dream it, we cannot achieve it, which I know also looks like a, a poster on your fifth grade classroom wall. <laughs> What I like about that, though, is that in Clark's notion, that is a golden age optimistic rendering of science fiction. But that through line very much runs throughout all of Vonnegut's writing, too, which is until we really think about how absurd and ridiculous things can become, we probably don't recognize that they're heading in that direction in the first place. So for me, the value of Slaughterhouse-Five is not just in showing the insanity of war – but in showing we, the common reader, that the only way that we can really ever understand the fucking insanity of war is by describing it in ridiculously reductive abstract terms about things happening on a Martian planet uh, and how your ability to process one is really not that different than your ability to process the other. Because the airplanes so suck up all the bombs that's and right. then return them to the factory where they can be dismantled and buried in the earth. That's yeah. right, B because they're both so fucking nuts. Yeah. And so I actually think the way that Vonnegut approaches writing and the way that science fiction ought approach writing or the best science fiction, in my opinion, does approach writing, which is to imagine what might become and then make a determination on if you want it to be that way or not and then act accordingly within that. Mm -hmm. So I very much think Vonnegut writes science fiction. He has some hard science fiction texts. Um, Player Piano is, in my opinion, a better 1984 uh, I think Cat's Cradle, which it follows the Honecker family, the family of the people of the uh, the family of the man who has created the atomic bomb and are now living out kind of the wrath of having created the to atomic bomb. To be clear, bomb. when Facebook came around, I was that motherfucker who put religion as bokenism. Yeah, absolutely. I was right? that, I was that motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so Vonnegut certainly has some, and then Slaughterhouse Five obviously has some science fiction elements as well. You know, fantasy science fiction. So I do think Vonnegut writes science fiction. I don't think he writes exclusively science fiction, but I think his approach to things. Which which is to meditate on the what could be uh, in one direction or another and then set a conversation or a narrative in those places is science fiction-oriented. It's science fiction-like in its approach yeah. to, to literature. You? Uh, so I think Kurt definitely wrote science fiction. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Kurt's early confusion with the term and later acceptance of the term is basically the way that all readers should accept it as well. Because it's basically a class distinction about like saying that Kurt Vonnegut can't be good at science fiction. And it's not true. Because like... 
it is science fiction in in part. So like, God bless you, Mister Rosewater is not science fiction, it's, right? You know, a, a, ostensibly a realist novel. Yeah, um, and there's many paces like that. If you interpret Slaughterhouse Five a number of ways, ostensibly a realist novel. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing. Like, uh, eventually, uh, Vonnegut is like, yeah, I write science fiction. I'm fine with it. I, I don't shit about science and I don't care because right. it's not the point of science fiction. Um, so I think the part of it is that Vonnegut is so goddamn good that you look at the gap between Vonnegut and anyone else in science fiction. You're like, it can't be in the same genre because the gap's so huge. Yeah. But I will respond how Vonnegut responded is that 90% of every genre and everything is also shit. Right. Uh, and he's not even talking, including himself among the greatest, but I'm like, there is no difference. Like, 90% of literary realist fiction is shit. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and that's a, that's a loving, a loving appreciation yeah. of that. Um, so, uh, I, w- I would say he definitely writes science fiction, and that's sort of a class divide to say he doesn't. Yeah. Um, and I agree that it's very different than other people's science fiction, but it's also like science fiction at his most basic form. And that's the thing. I don't think he's predictive in terms of technology. I think he's predictive in terms of what they mean. Like, that's right. Um, what does it mean for a human being to lose meaning? Is that worse than anything else? That's right. Like, he's not Bradbury pretending earbuds in Fahrenheit 451. Right. But at the same time, he's predicting moods. He's predicting entire, like, zeitgeist. That's right. Cultural paradigms, right? Yeah, exactly. There's this great... It it could be Oppenheimer. I think it was Oppenheimer. Uh, But it could have been one of the other members of the Manhattan Project. After they they see the first testing of the first atomic bomb, I think Oppenheimer or one of the other members of the Manhattan Project says something like, we were so busy trying to figure out what we could do, we didn't stop to ask what we should do. Yeah. That, That, to me... Uh, is is a, a conversation about setting. It's a conversation about environment, where the the motive of the environment is on can rather than should, is on end rather than purpose or motive. And so in, in that way, I think that Vonnegut is intimately tied to that. So when you say Vonnegut doesn't sh- give a shit about science, I largely agree, but I agree that he doesn't give a shit about the technical side of science. What he gives a shit about is science as a setting. Yeah. In that he gives a shit about any meaningful setting, which might dominate a cultural paradigm or a cultural framework, which would allow things to happen. And what happens at the extension of those things to a point, a, a point beyond a point, probably in some ways. And so, sure, I, I would call some of it science fiction. I don't know that he would care to call some of it science fiction. Um, I don't know that he would care at all what what some of it was no. called, right? Um, I, you but know. like, and, but that's the thing. Like, science is just a thing he tends to go back to as a sort of thematic obsession. Absolutely, and it's not by no means the only one. Like, Mother Night is not a science fiction novel in no. any way, shape, or form, but it's about the obsession of. Uh, performative identity. Like, right. are you different than what you do? Is there any way to separate that? Yeah. Um, does trying to separate that lead to madness? Yeah. Like, that kind of stuff. And then you've got, uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, talking about the nature of Christ-like love, yeah. talking about capitalism. Like, you know, again, it's not his only beef, no. but that science beef of, yeah. like, that predictive social paradigm thing well, is all what he goes of, back to. All of those things are, for him, overly deterministic. They are limiting paradigms which would dr- drive you down a path confined by that paradigm, and I think that he's very interested in writing on any anything that functions like that socially. So, religion, politics, science, history, dogma, all of these things are interesting to him because they are they are limiting, 
and they are motivating. Um, people who live in those paradigms act in those paradigms. And he, he wants to play with the notion that what happens if the, you know, the paradigm you've been living in has gotten us to this point? What does that look like then to the casual observer? And how does that interact with humans? And, and here's the thing, Justin had that. So like, I'll go back to Slaughterhouse-Five. I know it's the only one you read in high school, but it's still really powerful. It's phenomenal. So here's the thing. I am of the interpret- interpretation that Billy Pilgrim has PTSD. He is never fucking kidnapped by Trafalmadorians. Time is not some not fourth-dimensional construct that's already solid like a jello cube. And that he is just you know hallucinating a fucking narrative to justify what he went through mm-hmm. in a way of doing that. Hmm. I still think, even though there are no aliens, that fucking slaughterhouse five is science fiction because he is fundamentally dealing with what modern warfare means that's right like the fact that slaughterhouse five exists i feel like slaughterhouse five is very much a book in which kurt vonnegut is trying to figure shit out yes like and that he is not done so perfectly right and like there's later works that maybe represent modern warfare a little bit more succinctly like say tim o'brien's how to tell a true war story Mm -hmm. in which the ultimate decision is you cannot tell a true war Mm -hmm. story the only true war story is one where you make shit up Mm -hmm. to fill in the gaps of the insanity the the things they carried right yeah well that's fucking brutal yeah Yeah. yeah, exactly um and i feel like that but like that's what slaughterhouse five means to me he's trying to figure out like what is the ethos right. of this world of like, yeah, fucking factory level destruction and death, right? In a world where it's already so cruel, we should be kind to each other, right? And it and can reach this scope and like that, and it feels like very much like a you are already in this ethos, this zeitgeist. You're already caught in this overall, this atmosphere of it. What does that even mean? And that's very much like the pinnacle of what science fiction can do, right. regardless of the technology, be it like drone strikes or fire bombing Dresden. Right. Yeah. Both of these, thi- both of these things stretch me to my conceptual limits of, of being a human. Mm-hmm. Be- being in a building as it is firebombed in Germany and being abducted by aliens are at the far ends of spectrums in my ability to understand experience. And they're equally without context. Why couldn't I use one to process the other? And in some ways, I mean, that's what science fiction gives us. It gives us an imaginary framework for processing things we don't quite understand and giving them meaning, situating them somewhere in the universe so that we might pivot around them and say, oh, okay, look at that. That's what that means to me now, I guess, because now I have a vocabulary for it. Um, I'm going to stop myself before we go on too much longer because I could, I could, I could talk all day. Yeah, like I've literally lost jobs and by function healthcare and then by function almost my life over defending the novel Slaughterhouse Five and Kurt Vonnegut by extension. Um, so I'll go on for fucking forever right. about it. We should probably rein it in. What I will say is that. Um, while we would love to talk about Vonnegut exclusively, there's already a podcast for that, and they don't need our support. But you should, if you're into Vonnegut, Thad, or Justin, uh, you should listen to Kurt Vonnegut's fantastic, done by the Cracked team, where they go book club style, book by book, in these like two hour long uh, podcast yeah. breakdowns of each individual novel. And if you're not into Vonnegut, obviously Slaughterhouse, Slaughterhouse Five is a place to start. I would also recommend Breakfast of Champions as a Breakfast place to start. Breakfast of Champions is fantastic. Cat's Cradle is still my favorite. Cat's Cradle is great. If you've ever liked anything by Chuck Palahniuk, who I think is a Vonnegut hack, uh, what I would suggest that you do is just go read Breakfast of Champions because that is what it is like to truly be an adult, an immature adult and encounter the world. I hate myself for at once in my life liking Chuck Palahniuk right. and not just reading more Vonnegut. That's instead. absolutely right. Yeah. Um, yeah. We do want to thank all of you. If you've made it this far, that means that you've listened to all of the free version. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you're listening to the free version, we really appreciate it. God and bless you, Mr. Patron. God bless you, Mr. Almost Patron, maybe. Yeah. Um, if you love us, we'd appreciate it if you go on iTunes and 
rate and review us. Uh, and if you love us a lot, we'd really appreciate it if you give us at least a dollar on Patreon so you could hear more conversations like this in Beer 6, which we'll be recording in a moment. If not, we totally get it. That's your hard-earned dollar. No big deal at all. And mm-hmm. thank you so much for your time. We'll see you next time on The Mix 6. Definitely.